Hey everyone, this is Mike DeBliss. The topic of this podcast is on the IRS whistleblower program and cryptocurrency. This is actually an interesting area of tax law and one that has undergone a number of developments over the last couple of years. The anchor um, to lure you into this topic is um, the question, did you know that the IRS will pay you to turn in tax evaders? Not a lot of people are aware of it, but the IRS has a program that allows for an award to be made to people who assist the IRS in discovering violations of the tax laws, specifically in relation to the detection of underpayments and fraud by taxpayers. This program is called the IRS Whistleblower Program. Now, the whistleblower program has been in existence for nearly 150 years, but an act that was passed in 2006 called the Tax Relief and Health Care Act made whistleblowing a much more lucrative pursuit than it was in earlier years. And by lucrative, what I mean here is that a whistleblower could receive up to 30% of the amount the IRS collects from the culprit. Now, I mentioned at the top that there have been developments um, that um, have occurred in recent years that substantially impact IRS whistleblower claims. A number of years ago when this program was um, still in its infancy, there was a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty surrounding it. But this new law has cleared the way for tax whistleblowers to get paid top dollar for information provided to the IRS. Essentially, the IRS will now pay whistleblowers for information that leads not only to the collection of taxes and tax penalties, but also criminal fines, forfeiture, and fines for failing to disclose foreign bank accounts. That is a critical um, a critical development and one that distinguishes the IRS whistleblower program from other whistleblower programs. What I mean by that is that there are whistleblower programs in other areas of the law, specifically um, in what is called uh, quitom actions. Uh, they are typically administered by the Security and Exchange Commission. Um, and in those um, actions, the whistleblower is exempt and not entitled to criminal fines and penalties. So you can see here that the fact that the IRS whistleblower program allows whistleblowers to potentially um, dip their beak into criminal fines, forfeitures, and fines for failing to disclose foreign bank accounts that in itself makes it more lucrative than some of the other whistleblower programs, um, specifically the Quitom actions that are administered by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The other thing that makes the IRS whistleblower program um, very appetizing and um, more, um, more lucrative than the Quitom actions is that it tends to move quicker. With these quitom actions, the whistleblower normally has to wait 
on the sidelines as a parallel criminal proceeding takes precedent over the civil quitom complaint. Um, now, while it's not guaranteed that there may not be a parallel criminal proceeding that takes place uh, while the whistleblower, while the IRS whistleblower investigation is being conducted, usually the rule of thumb is that there uh, is that the IRS um, does not always pursue criminal um, actions or criminal parallel proceedings as uh, frequently and with the gusto that the Securities and Exchange Commission does. So that in itself reduces the amount of time that it takes for a whistleblower claim to be um, examined. And the other development here is that um, if, you, um, if you're familiar with foreign bank accounts, you know that that is the uh, soup du jour, so to speak. It is the uh, one thing that the, uh, that the IRS has become super focused on lately, ferreting out individuals who have unreported foreign bank accounts and um, assessing uh, what could be very, uh, very high penalties that uh, correspond to the willful failure to file um, an FBAR, which is known as the Foreign Bank Account Report. So in connection with IRS whistleblower actions, um, the uh, failure, um, knowledge of, a person's, of another person's failure to disclose foreign bank account reports could make the whistleblower eligible for an IRS whistleblower award. So for those reasons, the IRS whistleblower program has um, come to be known as one of the paramount whistleblower programs that the government that's in existence today that um, is being, uh, main, that is being um, maintained by the government. Now, let's delve into the weeds a little bit um, to discuss the nuances of the uh, whistleblower um, uh, procedures and how to basically spark or jumpstart a whistleblower, um, a whistleblower claim. Essentially, the whistleblower has to present specific and credible information to the IRS that the whistleblower believes will lead to collected proceeds from people that are believed to have failed to comply with the internal revenue laws. I realize that that's a mouthful. If we boil that down or distill it down to its core, um, to its core, to its core elements, what the IRS is saying here is that it wants specific and credible information that will lead to uh, collected proceeds from tax cheats. Uh, that's essentially what the IRS is saying. Um, so the more specific that it is, the better. And by specific, what the IRS is referring to is any supporting documents along with the allegation so that it's not simply just a, um, it's not simply just a, a hollow allegation, but it's one that has um, supporting documentation that supports the allegation being made. And of course, it's got to be credible. Um, as with any matter that is being claimed in court, um, it has to have a good faith basis. It cannot be 
uh, one that is brought, um, you know, uh, that is brought uh, uh, in a scurrilous way uh, or in a way um, to, uh, in a way that lacks any, um, that lacks any credibility because at the end of the day you could potentially be at risk for, um, for penalties and sanctions yourself if you make a baseless claim. So now we're going to get into the forms that have to be prepared. And I realize that um, these forms become a little bit um, complicated and um, can muddy up the waters, but it's actually easy to access these forms by merely putting the number of the form into Google. And usually the form pops right up and you, know, you can actually type the information directly into the PDF version of the form after you download it. To claim an award, a whistleblower must file Form 211. And that form is called the Application for Award for Original Information. The form is filed with the Whistleblower Office of the IRS. What does the form include? Well, it includes um, a lot of information. Um, essentially background information uh, ranging from the date of the claim, the whistleblower's name, the whistleblower's address and telephone number, the whistleblower's date of birth, the whistleblower's taxpayer identification number, which is usually the social security number, and this is really important, an explanation of how the whistleblower obtained the reported information and his or her relationship to the persons identified on Form 211, meaning the person who the whistleblower is um, claiming um, is the uh, tax cheat. There's also a section on Form 211 that is provided to describe the alleged violation. And um, again, as I mentioned before, not only is there a section for a description of the alleged violation, but the IRS likes details, they like specificity, so that section also um, requests an explanation of the non-compliance and it gives the whistleblower an opportunity to attach any supporting information that's in the whistleblower's possession. So. You know, the IRS, um, you know, wants to make sure that there is supporting information to back up the claim because it's very easy to, you know, shout from the rooftops that, um, you know, so-and-so is, um, you know, is uh, non-compliant with their tax obligations or so-and-so has failed to report an FBAR and has, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars parked in an offshore account in Switzerland. It's another thing to be able to provide documentation to back up those claims. Um, and, you know, in keeping with the cliche, actions speak louder than words, in the world of whistleblower claims, substantive um, documentation um, speaks louder than words. So, of course, you have to be very, you have to um, describe the alleged violation, but you also have to get into an explanation um, of the noncompliance and explain how you came to find it out and attach any supporting information that's in your possession. Within 30 days of receipt of Form 211, the IRS will send an acknowledgement letter to the whistleblower. 
after the IRS has reviewed the information and taken steps to investigate and collect any taxes, fines, or penalties owed, essentially what they do is they investigate the information that you provided in Form 211. And after they've completed their investigation, they then prepare what's called a Form 11369 or 11369. That form is called the Confidential Evaluation Report on Claim for Reward. Um, the investigation um, or the review, rather, of Form 211 is undertaken by the whistleblower office. Form 11369 basically explains and supports whether the information supplied by the whistleblower was used and whether the information did or did not result in, um, in identification of uh, the issues that were alleged. Um, you know, the IRS is basically um, preparing that form to say whether the information uh, led to something or whether it didn't, uh, whether it was helpful or whether it was unhelpful. Once the taxpayer, and now let's assume that the information uh, was used by the IRS and the information did contribute to the um, collection of taxes, fines, or penalties. In that case, once the taxpayer who was the target has been paid in full, an award recommendation will be prepared by the whistleblower office and sent to the whistleblower. Now this is where um, it gets interesting. If you've made it to that point and the IRS whistleblower office has acknowledged that the information that you supplied in Form 211 was not only helpful but actually resulted in the collection of taxes, fines, or penalties owed, what uh, they're saying right now is that the whistleblower office is going to send you an award recommendation. They're basically going to tell you that uh, we are awarding you X, and X is basically the uh, monetary amount. You then, as the whistleblower, have 30 days to either agree or disagree with the award recommendation. So there is a right to actually, um, there's a right to actually appeal the award. And um, to the extent that the whistleblower feels that um, he's been or she's been cheated, um, perhaps because the IRS, um, so, you know, forgot to um, forgot to um, calculate uh, the criminal fines, a percentage of the criminal fines that they collected from the target um, in the award, or perhaps. Um, there was an issue relating to forfeiture, and the IRS did not calculate um, a, a forfeiture award for the whistleblower. Any one of a number of issues could result for uh, could result in the taxpayer wanting to appeal the award. Um, but there's got to be a good faith basis. It can't just be um, that uh, the award is too low because you thought that the amount of taxes that were owed uh, should have been a lot higher than what was collected. Again, we're dealing with the taxes that were collected. Um, so um, it's a good practice to consult with a lawyer before um, you know, acquiescing 
um, or agreeing to an IRS whistleblower award if you've uh, already come that far on your own. Uh, certainly, it's good practice to get a lawyer involved at the very onset um, before you even file 211 um, so that you can present your um, a, a strong and compelling case. Now, again, the whistleblower has 30 days to either agree or disagree with the award recommendation. I want to talk a little bit about this um, issue of proceeds. Um, there, there's been over the years an incredible battle over the definition of proceeds, and I alluded to it earlier um, and have been mentioning it throughout this podcast where um, the IRS has basically argued that um, any fines or penalties it obtains um, should not be credited in the award to the whistleblower. So uh, the IRS used to interpret proceeds under the programs, uh, under the program to be limited only to taxes and tax penalties. Um, I'm sorry, just to uh, the taxes. Um, proceeds under the program um, have uh, so the IRS's argument has, has essentially been that any fines or penalties it obtained um, should not be credited in the award to the whistleblower. And that's been the tension that has um, taken place between the IRS and whistleblowers for years. In fact, it led to litigation in a case called Whistleblower 21276-13W versus Commissioner. In that case um, that was presented before the United States Tax Court, the tax court actually agreed with the taxpayer that criminal fines and civil forfeitures constitute collected proceeds on which whistleblower awards may be paid. The court explicitly said in its opinion that collected proceeds is very broad and sweeping in scope and is not limited to amounts assessed and collected under Title 26. Um, and so the tension and the battle over defining proceeds um, basically was resolved by the U.S. Tax Court, um, by the U.S. Tax Court interpreting collected proceeds as being broader than what the IRS interpreted it as meaning. Again, the IRS argued that any fines or penalties it obtained due to the whistleblower's information should not be credited in the award to the whistleblower. The whistleblower basically is was arguing in this case that it should be an entitled it should be entitled to an award on um, you know on everything, the whole kit and caboodle um, from the um, from the uh, unpaid taxes to the fines to the penalties, etc. etc. Now the IRS threatened to appeal the decision of the tax court that had ruled in favor of the taxpayer. Thankfully, Congress stepped in before the appeal uh, happened and before one of the circuit courts um, actually granted cert to hear the appeal. Congress, in responding to this litigation and the lobbying, stepped in and codified. Codified is just a fancy word to say that they um, made it into a statute. Um, so they basically took 
the broader definition of collected proceeds that was given by the tax court and they codified it by putting by by making by putting by inserting it into the statutes and um, so that it reflected the intent of the statute. Um, the tax court interpreted the statute to uh, mean that collected proceeds was broad enough to include um, fines, penalties, and, as well as a forfeiture, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so Congress stepped in and they wanted to reflect the intent of the statute and in doing so, they basically defined collected proceeds to be as broad as the tax court did. And so now what we have is we have a uh, we have the, the new legislation that's been signed into law by President Trump that now settles the debate once and for all. And the uh, the benefit it, uh, to this of this is that whistleblowers um, ha are clearly the winners in the sense that they are entitled to a uh, a lot more on uh, on under the collected proceeds definition than they previously were. Per the statute, the new definition of collected proceeds allows IRS whistleblowers to be paid a percentage of whatever criminal fines, forfeiture or non-tax related penalties the IRS collects. Um, and that's interesting because non-tax related penalties um, is you know, sweeping because a lot of times um, when a person is charged with an IRS tax crime, there are accompanying other crimes as well um, you know, from any one of a number of federal crimes such as money laundering um, to um, you know, uh, to obstruction of justice. Um, there, there are other, um, there are other charges that usually, uh, that usually accompany IRS-related criminal charges. So what this is saying here is that the whistleblower is entitled to be paid a percentage of whatever criminal fines, forfeiture, or non-tax-related penalties the IRS collects. The new legislation, of course, led to the dismissal of the appeal that the IRS. Um, had sought in the whistleblower 21276 case um, in which they were seeking reconsideration of the term's definition. Now, here are, here's the practical uh, reality of this new definition of collected proceeds. It has had its greatest impact on financial institutions and Fortune 500 companies. And what do I mean by that? Well, with criminal fines in excess of a billion dollars being assessed against big um, these big companies and these big banks and these big Fortune 500 companies, whistleblowers who come forward stand to collect hundreds of millions of dollars. Here are um, here are two examples. In 2008, uh, there was an accountant by the name of Daniel Schlicksup. He worked for the company Caterpillar Incorporated. I believe that that was the company that um, uh, that uh, builds the uh, builds uh, big uh, warehouse um, equipment and uh, machinery. 
uh, forklifts uh, are one that come to mind um, right away. Daniel blew the whistle on what he believed to be questionable international tax practices with Caterpillar. According to emails sent from Schlicksup to, to executives within the company, Caterpillar's corporate structure lacked economic substance and was reorganized primarily for tax avoidance. As a result, the IRS claimed that Caterpillar owed more than $2 billion in back taxes. Now, under the IRS, and I'm going to give you a comparison here, under the IRS's former view of collected proceeds, Daniel Schlicksup would have been eligible to earn between $300 million and $600 million if Caterpillar paid the full amount owed. Now, after the new legislation was enacted, Schlicksup stands to receive a heck of a lot more. He would receive not only the initial three hundred to six hundred million, but on top of that, a percentage of all fines and penalties incurred. And so, as you can see here, the enactment of the new legislation that broadened the definition of collected proceeds just doubled um, this man's uh, whistleblower award. Um, you know, um, and that was based on the fact that um, it is broad enough to include the fines and penalties incurred. If the IRS had won, then um, it would have precluded Schlicksup from receiving fines and penalties incurred. The other example I wanted to provide you with was the UBS Group prosecution. And that also dates back to 2008. I realize we're going back a little bit in time. Um, as many are aware, the IRS has aggressively pursued taxpayers with unreported assets and bank accounts um, that are located outside of the United States. As many know, the penalties for not reporting these foreign assets to the United States can go into the stratosphere. Um, they are substantially greater than the tax that would have otherwise been owed to the IRS on the interest income generated by the account. Um, so it's actually a, an oxymoron, but in the world of FBAR penalties, the penalties are so high that they could be um, as much as 50 to 100 times more than the tax liability on the unreported interest generated by the, um, by the foreign account. Um, so for example, with a willful FBAR violation, the penalty is the greater of 50% of the highest maximum aggregate balance in the account or $100,000, whichever is greater. So to give you an idea and to put this into perspective, if we're dealing with an unreported bank account, say in Switzerland, that had a high balance of $500,000, again, we're dealing with the high balance. That's what drives the FBAR penalty. If the highest balance in the foreign bank account was $500,000, um, that triggered an FBAR filing requirement because anything over $10,000 US 
um, as a high water mark at any time during the tax year automatically triggers an FBAR. But if we're dealing with, a, with an example where the high water mark balance was $500,000 and it wasn't reported, the IRS could assert a willful FBAR penalty that would be either 50% of that high balance, 50% uh, of $500,000 or $100,000, whichever is greater. As um, in this example, 50% of $500,000 is $250,000, and that's the greater, that's greater than $100,000. That would be the penalty just on that single account for a willful FBAR violation. Um, now, the interest income generated by that $500,000 account uh, would, um, would likely create a U.S. tax liability that may not exceed more than just $1,000 U.S. or a few thousand dollars. So one can imagine how greater, how radically um, how radical the difference is between the actual FBAR penalty for willful versus what the uh, tax liability would be if the account had been reported on the FBAR and had been uh, reported on the taxpayer's um, individual income tax return. So, um, you know, in hindsight, a lot of times it's easier just to report the account and as much as the compliance will create some additional fees to the accountant for preparing an FBAR, at the end of the day, paying the tax liability and paying the accountant the additional amount that is owed for preparing the appropriate forms um, is far less expensive than the risk of paying a willful FBAR penalty. A non-willful FBAR penalty, on the other hand, um, has a high a high penalty of $10,000. So the um, IRS has a number of obstacles to overcome in order to assert the willful FBAR penalty, but nonetheless, they've done so in the past and they continue to do so. And the risk of getting ensnared in a willful FBAR penalty where you might literally have to leverage your house, mortgage your house in order to pay the penalty. Is, um, is so much more draconian than simply paying the taxes on the interest income that's generated, take advantage of all foreign tax credits that are available, and pay your accountant or tax preparer the amount that, that um, he or she demands to prepare the additional uh, forms. So getting back, and I realize I went off on a tangent here, but getting back to the UBS example, the UBS prosecution back in 2008 is interesting because um, the new law now makes the penalties associated with not disclosing foreign assets, including not filing a foreign bank account report subject to whistleblower collection. The penalties, as I discussed, for failing to file an FBAR can be as high as 50% of the unreported bank account, highest balance of the unreported bank account uh, for each year the FBAR was willfully uh, not filed. So here's the example. If an in-house bookkeeper knows that an executive of the company has an unreported $10 million bank account, the bookkeeper could collect from the IRS a portion of the potentially of the potential 
uh, $5 million penalty the executive pays to the IRS for willful non-filing of the FBAR. Now, I want to also talk about something that the new law opens the uh, water gates for, or um, you know, essentially um, opens the floodgates to. It opens the floodgates to potential whist whistleblowing to the IRS um, in the sphere of cryptocurrencies. Here's what I mean. If a whistleblower is aware of the use of cryptocurrency, to evade taxes and the IRS based on the tip begins an audit and collects money the whistleblower is entitled to an award under the new law if the cryptocurrency was used for an illicit purpose such as a fraud scheme and the IRS seizes the actual cryptocurrency the whistleblower could receive between 15 and 30 percent of the seized virtual currency. So the new broader definition of proceeds creates an incentive to provide information to the IRS because it now expands the penalty um, that the whistleblower could claim to include criminal fines and forfeiture. Now I realize that a lot of what I talked about here is um, is very technical in nature and might be a little bit confusing. If you have any questions about anything that was discussed or if you're not sure if you should proceed or need help even filling out a form, feel free to shoot me an email and I'd be more than happy to assist you um, in any way I can. My email is mjdebliss at theblisslaw.com. Um, at the end of the day, by reporting these illegal activities, not only will you be doing the right thing, but you could, of course, be ensuring yourself um, a, lucrative, um, a lucrative award down the line.